1: This week on Deconstructed, I'm Sharon Lerner, investigative reporter for The Intercept, sitting in for Ryan Grimm. Our guest this week is Steven Donziger, the environmental lawyer who sued Chevron and won. Donziger helped win a multi billion dollar judgment against the company for the contamination of land in Ecuador specifically the Lago Agrio region, where he's been fighting on behalf of indigenous people and farmers for more than 25 years. As Donziger was arguing the case against Chevron in Ecuador back in 2009, the company said its long-term strategy was to demonize him. And since then, Chevron has waged an all-out assault on Donziger, in what's become one of the most bitter and drawn-out cases in the history of environmental law. Chevron has hired private investigators to track Donziger, created a publication just to smear him, and put together a legal team of hundreds of lawyers from 60 firms who have successfully pursued an extraordinary campaign against him. As a result, Donziger has been disbarred his bank accounts have been frozen. He's had a lien placed on his apartment. He faces exorbitant fines, and he was prohibited from earning money. A court seized his passport and put him on house arrest. Chevron, which has a market capitalization of $316 billion, has the funds to continue targeting Donsger for as long as it chooses. In an email statement, Chevron wrote that, quote, any jurisdiction that observes the rule of law should find the fraudulent Ecuadorian judgment to be illegitimate and unenforceable. The statement also said that, quote, Chevron will continue to work to hold the perpetrators of this fraud accountable for their actions, including Stephen Donziger, who has committed a litany of corrupt and illegal acts related to his Ecuadorian judicial fraud against. Chevron. Donziger was charged with contempt of court for refusing to hand over his computer, cell phone, and other electronic devices in August of 2019. He had already endured 19 days of depositions and given Chevron large portions of his case file. To him, the request for his devices was beyond the pale, and he appealed it on the grounds that it would require him to violate his commitments to his clients. Still, Donsker said he'd turn over the devices if he lost the appeal. Instead, he ended up confined by the court to his Upper West Side apartment. Even though the underlying case was civil, the federal court judge who has presided over the litigation between Chevron and Donsker since 2011, Lewis Kaplan, drafted criminal contempt charges against him. Kaplan ruled in 2014 That the Ecuadorian judgment against Chevron was invalid because it was obtained through quote, egregious fraud, and that Donziger was guilty of racketeering, extortion, wire fraud, money laundering, obstruction of justice, and witness tampering. The decision hinged on the testimony of an Ecuadorian judge named Alberto Guerra, who claimed that Donziger had bribed him during the original trial, and that the decision against Chevron had been ghostwritten. In 2015, when Gerard testified in an international arbitration proceeding, he admitted that he had lied and changed his story multiple times. In another legal peculiarity, in July, Kaplan appointed a private law firm to prosecute Donsger after the Southern District of New York declined to do so, a move that is virtually unprecedented. And, As Donziger's lawyer has pointed out, the firm Kaplan chose, Seward and Kissel, likely has ties to Chevron. Making the case even more extraordinary, Kaplan bypassed the standard random assignment process and hand-picked someone he knew well, U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska, to oversee the case being prosecuted by the firm he chose. It was Preska who sentenced Donziger to home detention and ordered the seizure of his passport, even though Donziger had appeared in court on hundreds of previous occasions. When I visited Donziger in his apartment last year, he had no idea that he would end up spending more than 900 days there on house arrest. On Monday, Donziger was finally released. Ryan Grimm and I talked to him shortly afterwards. Here is our conversation.
2: I'm feeling great.
1: Yeah, big day.
2: Yeah, what day did you get off? I mean, what time? It was around 9.30, 10 maybe in the morning. Did you get an alert that said you're, I mean, I saw you got an alert like that was uh, kind of penal coming after you at like five in the morning. But then did you get an alert saying you're now a free person? No, they don't do that. Um <laughs>
1: What's the first thing you did?
2: Well, I, I came
3: outside and there were some people there and I taped a little talk and took a picture and then I went into the subway and came home and <laughs> my wife was there and some of my friends and we hugged and we rejoiced in the moment. You know, you don't really, I, I, I didn't really understand, fully understand what freedom was until it was taken away. You know, I've lived in my home now for 993 days straight, other than 45 days in federal prison. So it's been quite the experience. It lasted a long time, you know, for various reasons, I think, related to retaliation by Chevron against me for my successful human rights work in Ecuador. But, you know, the, the cost to me and my family obviously was very, very high. Although I think in the end of the day, it really is backfiring against Chevron and that we now have a much
2: bigger, broader platform to advocate from than we did before. Does it feel different to be in your home now that you know you can leave? Like, does the home itself feel different that you're, there, that you're there voluntarily?
3: It does feel different. You know, freedom is not only the ability to kind of move around, travel, go out to eat, do what you want to do when you want to do it, you know, within reason. It's also a psychological state. I found that I had taken freedom for granted, you know, my whole life. I mean, even just the ability to sort of think, hey, maybe later today I'll go to dinner or maybe later today I'll go see a show or go visit a friend, you know, and you just, you know, what it does, uh, my house arrest did. I mean, prison's even worse, obviously, but house arrest deprives you of the ability to plan. It cuts you off from your friends and, you know, your social life. You can't even think about the future. I mean, one bizarre feature of my experience was that when it began, it was, I was pre trial and COVID hit. And, you know, it was very unclear how long it would last. And Judge Presca, who put the ankle bracelet on me and forced me into my house, and the theory I was a risk of flight, which I was preposterous and I reject, um, it was very clear she was never going to take that ankle bracelet off, even if COVID lasted, you know, five years and there were no trials being held. So for a long, long, long period of time, um, most of the time I've been in detention, it, it felt like it was an indefinite detention. Um, and it was, there was no end point. And it wasn't until you know I was denied a jury and I had a contempt trial where Judge Prescott, the very person who had locked me up for, by that point for two years and two months prior to trial, she was my sole fact finder. And of course she convicted me after denying me a fair trial in my opinion. And then she still, on top of the two years and two months, sentenced me to six months in prison (laughs) when the maximum, you know, again, the maximum sentence for a misdemeanor is six months. And she gave me the full sentence, not counting any of the two years and two months she had already made me stay at home. So this was a very, in my opinion, corporate-generated, politicized effort by two federal judges judge preskin her colleague judge kaplan who appointed her to the case and who charged me with these supposed crimes i mean the, his charges by the way were rejected by the federal prosecutor but they prosecuted me anyway with this private corporate law firm that had chevron as a client so you know there were all sorts of things happening but it was very clear that this was a chevron prosecution all the main witnesses in my supposed trial were chevron lawyers The prosecutor was from a Chevron law firm and the judge, Judge Preska, is a major leader of the Federalist Society where Chevron is a major funder. So I was surrounded from almost every angle by Chevron during my supposed trial.
2: And this is not remotely the same thing, but when I was in my late teens, I got put on supervised probation for basically like underage drinking. It was like an extremely draconian uh, uh, sentence that was laid out. It meant you it, my travel was restricted. I had to like do weekly drug tests. I had to meet with a probation officer and there was there was something about the entire like when, when you talk about the psychology of it, there's something about the state like telling you that the public has decided that you are a person that needs to be controlled that is just kind of psychologically devastating even if you know that it's not true. And in my case, I knew it wasn't true in, in your case, obviously wildly different. You're a human rights attorney getting prosecuted basically you know, by this judge. But there's still something weighty about the public having dealt a sentence at you. Like, did, Is that related to the restriction of freedom or, or not?
3: Well, I think you make a really good point with your question. There's a certain designed humiliation that takes mm-hmm. place when the state sentences anyone to any kind of punishment or even subjects them to arrest without a conviction. People assume you're guilty of something if you're even arrested or detained pre-trial, as I was. And really, I would argue that was the whole point of why Chevron had this done to me, was to try to criminalize my successful human rights advocacy. This is not uncommon. A lot of big companies go after environmental lawyers and activists who do their jobs effectively to try to make it look like what they're doing is criminal when they're, what they're actually doing is, you know, at least in my case, was complying with the law and trying to save the planet.
1: I guess I would say, I think your case is unusual. It's, it's super unusual, I think, you know, have we seen any other uh, human rights or environmental attorneys imprisoned in this way? I haven't for sure.
3: Oh, no. I mean, I look, my case is an absolute extreme outlier. There's no doubt. You're totally right. But there are a lot of other cases that are less severe where environmental activists have been prosecuted. I mean, the protests at Standing Rock and Line 3 are a great example. I mean, these people are generally charged with trespassing, but many of them get locked up for months and months. Indigenous people's you know, charged with trespassing on their own historical ancestral yeah. lands to try to block the pipeline. So there's all these, there's all these legal, you know, so-called crimes that can be marshaled by, in in that case, public prosecutors, um, in my case, by a private law firm, you know, that can create a legal, a supposed legal basis to lock people up. I'd make this point though, which is that. My case is an outlier, but I think the industry, the fossil fuel industry and the Chevrons of the world want it to become the new normal. And that's why I think people really need to focus on this and pay attention. It's an outlier now, but what happens when it happens again? You know, or for a third time or a fourth time? And suddenly people are like, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, private prosecutions, okay, yeah, that that happens now. And we can't let an outlier, an extreme I would call, you know, political, politically motivated prosecution of a human rights lawyer in the United States of America become the new normal because it will really, this case in my opinion is a direct violation on the rule of law. I mean, who's ever heard of a private law, corporate law firm prosecuting, you know, a lawyer who won a civil case against a big oil company and that private corporate law firm. has the big oil company as a private client while it's prosecuting in the name of the US government, you know, the the main critic and the biggest adversary of the oil company. I mean, that's not what happens in any rule of law country, much less the United States of America. So, you know, look, there's no doubt Chevron broke new ground in terms of the tools and weapons it has and the larger industry has at their disposal to, you know, capture the public machinery of justice, of our criminal justice system, and wield it in a way that tries to silence legitimate advocacy. That that That's new. But that's why it's so scary. And I think that's why, by the way, I've gotten so much support over the last two, three years while I've been detained. I mean, it's just extraordinary the amount of support we've gotten because people are really terrified by this and they understand that this case goes way, way beyond me personally. It really is a direct assault on the ability to advocate by all environmental justice advocates, human rights lawyers who are on the front lines trying to defend our earth. So you know, people get it, more and more people get it, and we can't let this happen again.
2: And so Sharon, you've done for The Intercept some of the best reporting on this case. Uh, For people who are just kind of tuning into it, can you catch people up on the background here.
1: Yeah, thank you. So this case goes back to 1993 is, is I guess, what I would call the beginning, which is when a class action suit was filed in New York against Texaco over contamination of land in Ecuador that was the home to farmers and indigenous people 30,000 people. So I'm thinking that's, you know, b- about 30 years ago we're talking about. So this case was moving forward in New York and was moved to Ecuador at the request of Chevron actually. And, in two thousand and eleven, the Ecuadorian Court ruled against Chevron, ordering it to pay eighteen billion dollars- an award that was later reduced to nine point five billion and This was a massive, huge and historic win, a real david and Goliath kind of situation but that same year, Chevron filed a RICO suit, a racketeer-influenced corrupt organization suit against Steven yeah. in New York. And the company had made it clear a couple of years before in a document that we link in one of my stories that its long-term strategy was to demonize him. And you can really see that play out both in the RICO suit and again, the RICO suit was—I believe that was 2011. So that's already 11 years ago. Basically, that suit in in 2014, the a case the case was decided in federal court by this federal court judge named Lewis Kaplan, who ruled that the Ecuadorian judgment was invalid because it was obtained through fraud, basically, and that judgment. And I know that's super complicated, so stay with me. But that hinged on the testimony of an Ecuadorian judge named Alberto Guerra, who claimed that Donsger had bribed him in the original trial. So it turned out that Guerra was actually paid by Chevron hundreds of thousands of dollars and later admitted to having lied. When Stephen tried to get that testimony considered and the court to reconsider that testimony had declined and basically what happened since then was a sort of snowballing of decisions made by first lewis kaplan right that found against stephen so there's the rico suit and then following the rico suit that found that he you know based on the testimony of this judge found that he had bribed the judge even though we knew that that witness was paid by Chevron and later admitted to lying, you know, it was basically everything sort of hinged on that one decision, including the disbarment of Stephen, right? And we should say that the charges that got him into this situation where he was on house arrest and then spent some time in prison was for a contempt of court charge, which is a civil charge, right? Which was, he was asked to hand over his cell phone and computer Something few attorneys have been asked to do. He said no because he felt it would not be fair to his clients. And while this is a kind of strange charge, it is a civil charge, and I believe a misdemeanor is something that does not usually land anyone getting. No one gets arrested for this. In this case, of course, he was not only arrested but served as he just said. What? what how many days were you in right, on uh, the house arrest? Yeah. 993 days. Oh, my God. So so it's really an extreme and unusual situation. And, you know, obviously an epic ordeal for, for Stephen, as he's telling us. But, you know, the reason... I think, beyond our, our, our you know, concern for fellow human beings and for for activist attorneys who are working on behalf of fellow human beings, you know, the reason we all need to worry about this is because of the implications for activism and, and, and for trying to hold big oil companies accountable. And I think, you know, obviously, this this has been going on for decades, as we said. And, you know, when this we we're first getting the the decisions in this case you know between just the, those 10 11 years or 9 10 years i just feel like so much has changed in terms of the climate movement right we're now realizing that in order to kind of survive we need to hold accountable these companies and steven's case was like really one of the the first where they were being held accountable for their oil extraction and, and the very envir- environmental consequences of it and they made it super clear that you know they weren't they were gonna fight back and we're gonna i feel like he was made an example of and I I really am. I'd love to talk more and hear him talk more about about what the example means. In some ways, I think, as he has pointed out, there's going to be there's some backlash that that basically this can backfire on them. But Stephen, I worry, you know, this has been, as you said, incredibly hard for you. And I'm wondering where this Leaves you, in, you know, financially and and your career. Do you have a, a hope of of reversing this disbarment? I'm curious.
3: Okay, so um, I think what Sharon said is really important, and I want to compliment Sharon on her excellent journalism generally and her work on the this particular case, my case in particular. She was really the first reporter to report extensively on my detention, and you know, and I appreciate the Intercept. I think you guys do great work. Look, I feel really good right now. Chevron tried to silence me. I'm now through what they put on me, and I feel stronger and more supported than ever. I mean, we have so much support around the world that we never had before, largely because Chevron, I think, overreached. And the world stepped up to try to protect me and protect the Ecuadorians. I mean, just as an example, there's 68 Nobel Peace laureates, who have demanded my release. You know, there's 120 human rights and environmental organizations who have written President Biden demanding he pardon me. There's, you know, dozens of bar associations around the world who demanded my release. So we're coming out of this in some ways a lot stronger. Yes, I've lost my law license. I hope to get it back. I'm starting a substack, by the way, to become my own kind of journalist. I used to be a journalist. I'm going to be doing a lot of writing about the Ecuador case and about the prison experience and about other human rights issues around the world that I'm going to be working on. So I'm really excited about the future. And you know, I don't plan anymore to practice law in a traditional sense. I plan to use my legal skills not to have clients, but to just be able to analyze the law and advocate more broadly for victims of human rights abuses. That's one of the ways I'm planning on, you know, maintaining myself and my family.
1: Are Are you still on the hook for legal expenses of Chevron in this case?
3: Unclear. Uh, Judge Kaplan, as part of these attacks on me, ordered me to literally pay millions of dollars to Chevron for to reimburse it for legal expenses it used to persecute me, basically. Um, so, you know, look, there's some legal issues that are still out there. This is not over um, just because I'm out of you know this detention situation. But the case is a civil case, not a criminal case. And, you know, we'll see how it plays out.
1: I wonder, too, I mean, one of the big tragedies of all of this is that while we have rallied to your defense, and I think rightly so, and have been highlighting the fact that, you know, this is a terrible example for other climate activists, the people of the Amazon in Ecuador have not received a penny, right, from this company for the destruction of their land. And I'm wondering what you think the prospects are for any justice to be done for actual, you know, for, for any court anywhere forcing the company to pay the judgment.
3: Well, I think that the prospects for paying, forcing Chevron to pay the judgment are significant. I think that's one reason why they keep attacking me because they're so scared that I will somehow, you know, exercise what they believe are my powers of sorcery to somehow make them pay billions of dollars. I mean, I think they want to destroy me because I raised most of the money to finance the case up to this point. But look, there's other lawyers working on it now. I'm not going to be leading anything. I'm no longer a lawyer. You know, we'll see if the Ecuadorian communities and their rest of their legal team or want to are able to bring in enforcement action. I, I really don't know how that's going to play out. I do know that Chevron has a judgment against it in the courts of Ecuador that's valid and has been affirmed by multiple appellate courts, both in Ecuador and Canada. So they have a, a real risk there. They're fighting every step of the way to try to prevent payment of the money to the people they, you know, courts have determined they poisoned in the Amazon. Um, how that plays out remains to be seen.
2: And you know, we've reached out to Chevron multiple times. I know, Sharon, you've gotten a handful of either statements or statements that they've offered elsewhere. They even created a a propaganda outlet, like an entire mm-hmm. newspaper. They call the Amazon Post that is dedicated to, and they don't they don't really hide that it's their propaganda outlet. It's, they they say. Mm -hmm. I have it here. They say at the very top of it, Chevron's views and opinions on the Ecuador lawsuit, but it's called the Amazon post. And beyond that disclaimer at the top, it looks like a normal news outlet.
1: I I was obsessed with that. Right. I have to say, no, that's what drew me to your story. Stephen. was I used to go and look at that page and it just, after reading uh, Patrick Radden keeps New Yorker story years, uh, years before, and it just blew me away that they, you know, I kept thinking the company has hired people to work on this. And it's like, a, you know, the massive resources they were enabled to to focus on a single individual, you, is really mind-blowing.
3: Yeah, it is. I can't believe it didn't anticipate it. I mean, they've set up two websites dedicated to what I would argue is the destruction of my reputation. Um, They've also, on the legal front, used 60 different law firms, 2,000 lawyers. They have six PR firms designed to control information around the case and what I and other advocates do. But that was sort of my point earlier. I think they've sort of lost control of the messaging around the case because the truth is caught up with their lies. That's what I would argue. You know, the evidence is so strong. And I also think, Sharon, that the locking me up for almost three years when people who interview me and who know me know that's not who I am. You know, I don't commit crimes. I'm a lawyer. Okay, so I think the overreach, I think, caused people to be, in my opinion, much, much more skeptical of Chevron's claims than they otherwise would have been. And I think the longer my detention lasts, I think the more people are like, wait a second, if they're like in a private prosecution locking a lawyer up who won a big pollution judgment against them, then maybe they really did do something wrong. Maybe the lawyer's right. Maybe the courts in Ecuador are right in how they decided the case. So I think it shifted shifted the perception greatly when they locked me up in our favor.
1: Well, how confident are you that they're not going to continue to use their vast resources to smear you and attack you? Because, I mean, despite public opinion, they don't seem, you know, even when they're not with public opinion, they're incredibly powerful, right? Just because of the amount of money they have. So do you think that they're going to stop going after you? And and if so, why?
3: I think they're going to keep on the same path they've been on. I mean, I fully expect it, but I just don't think it's going to be that effective. I I just don't. I think people know too much now, and I think there's enough people, you know, there's a critical mass of people out there who have access to the information, you know, outside of the corporate kind of big media companies. Like the New York Times for years has ignored this critically important story, as an example. Hardly, you can hardly see anything on the networks. So I think, you know, I, I, look, I, I live my life, baked into my life is that there's a big oil company willing to spend lots of money to try to mess up my life. I mean, that's just how I have to live and my guess is I'll have to live that way for the rest of my life. But you know what? It's like, good. Okay. It means we were effective and I want to emphasize that this stuff's happening. I mean, they're attacking us because we were successful and effective not because of any other reason. So if you're going to get into this field of work and really go toe to toe with a big powerful company that's a major polluter in an effort to save our planet, you're going probably, if you're effective, to get hit with some version of what I'm getting hit with. I think I'm getting hit with a really extreme version because of the size of the judgment and just the amount number of years it's lasted.
1: Well, you have said you, that you really want Biden to to pardon you. And I'm wondering yeah. if, you know, and, and obviously that's meaningful to you in some way. And I'm wondering what that would achieve for you. And, you know, conversely, if he doesn't do that, what are you stuck with? You know, I think we it, it'll be helpful to understand what you've been weighed down with.
3: Yeah, thank you. I mean, so look, the reason we're asking President Biden to pardon me is because the system failed. The legal system failed in this case. And the way it failed is I'm the first person in American history to be prosecuted by a private corporation, a private corporate law firm that had, you know, Chevron in this case as one of its clients, and I was the lawyer who beat Chevron in court over this, you know, significant, I would say epic pollution case. And they were trying to retaliate against me and deprive me of my liberty. I'm the only lawyer ever in the U.S. to be held pretrial on a misdemeanor. And I was held for over two years and two months, even though the longest sentence ever given a lawyer for my offense level prior to my case was 90 days of home confinement. So this was clearly retaliation by a corporation. And, you know, it's never been corrected by an appellate court. Like, there's nowhere to go. So for the rule of law to be restored in our country, vis-a-vis what happened to me in this case, the only option is for President Biden to issue a pardon. That won't um, save me from all the other attacks Chevron's able to do, by the way. That would just be a pardon for the criminal conviction on this contempt case where I was denied a jury and where I was prosecuted by this private law firm. And, And also, by the way, denied the right to put on a real defense by an evidentiary ruling of the judge. So you know, I think it's important that the United States not become a country that locks up its human rights lawyers like some other countries around the world do, and I think President Biden is the only person at this point who can really, you know, address this problem in any kind of fundamental way. By the way, we've asked Attorney General Garland to deal with it by taking back the prosecution from the Chevron law firm and prosecuting me directly under the auspices of the Department of Justice. You know, I was, for look, for a year, I was the only, probably the only lawyer in US history ever begging the DOJ to prosecute uh-huh. me or her. Yeah. You know, because like it was so preposterous, like I couldn't deal with this private law firm. They wouldn't even negotiate. They wouldn't talk in, with any kind of normal prosecutorial sanity or discretion. I mean, they were just out to harm me as much as they possibly could, backed by a judge who also was out to harm me. So the whole system went awry. So, you know, I'm disappointed, by the way, in Attorney General Garland for not taking back the prosecution. I'm disappointed in his performance on other issues like the, you know, the the January 6th in so-called insurrection. But... The only place left to go now in my case is President Biden for a pardon. And by the way, if you can go to my website, freedonziger.com, you can read the letter that 10 lawyers signed, prominent lawyers, to President Biden seeking the pardon for me.
1: But to be clear, for you, this is about the precedent and clearing your name. Or, or is there also, would it materially change, you know, anything for you? That's what I'm curious about.
3: Well, I think it is about Clearing my name. I think it's about erasing a conviction that's a violation of international law and violation of the Constitution. I think it would be very powerful um, on a symbolic level. Look, it's not going to give me my two years and seven. Actually, I was in for two years and eight months and two weeks. So it's not going to give me back my 32 months and two weeks. Okay, that's gone forever. But It will restore, I think, some semblance of fairness to the process. And I think it'll be symbolically extremely important for President Biden to step in to address this and correct this problem. It's
0: that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work.
2: And I also wanted to give you a chance to respond to some of Chevron's claims they've got these multiple PR firms, they've got the different propaganda outlets on online and if you you know if you if you peruse those you'll see that the claims that they're making that you know Sharon mentioned the the bribery allegation which you know, turns out that Chevron actually paid an extraordinary amount of money to this to this person um, and the person has you know admitted on the stand that they had lied. So setting that key witness, aside, they also make a number of minor claims. Um, they, you know, they claim that actually all of the damage to the rainforest was done by Petro-Ecuador, not, not by Texaco uh, or Chevron. They say that your team manipulated environmental reports and submitted them into the Ecuadorian courts. Uh, they say that you kind of blackmailed a judge to get him removed from the case and, and generally improperly pressured the courts and the people you know around the court so what is the what's the response to those various kind of chevron allegations
3: yeah so you know look I, I, we did not do anything wrong everything we did was in adherence to the law and the rules and customs of the, the civil justice system in Ecuador there was no bribe First of all, I would never bribe a judge. None of the people in our team bribed a judge. There's no evidence there was a bribe other than a paid Chevron witness who later admitted he lied. So I want to be very clear about that. The, the, these allegations were taken before the real courts in this case, that those in Ecuador, and three appellate courts, including the Supreme Court of the country and the country's constitutional court completely rejected these allegations because there's no evidence other than from the mouth of this paid Chevron witness His name is Alberto Guerra, who, by the way, was coached for 53 straight days by Chevron's lawyers in the United States before he took the stand in Judge Kaplan's court and came up with this spectacular allegation against me. Claimed I was in a meeting where he saw me approve the bribe of a trial judge. Never happened. There was no evidence it happened other than from his mouth. And uh, I reject it completely, as have courts all over the place. You know, they allege a lot of things. We manipulated environmental reports. I don't know what they're talking about. We worked as lawyers with our paid experts to write environmental reports that we thought accurately reflected the evidence. You know, the soil and water samples that undeniably, unassailably showed massive levels of toxic contamination at former Chevron well sites all over the rainforest. So, You know, they call that manipulation. Well, this is how the law works. You know, lawyers work with their experts to help them write reports. They did the same thing with their experts. You know, blackmail the judge. I completely reject that. Like, what are they talking about? I mean, it's crazy. Basically, what they're alleging is... The kinds of things they did constantly like they say we bribed the judge actually no they say we manipulated environmental reports false we wrote accurate environmental reports they were the ones manipulating the environmental evidence by taking for example soil and water samples you know hundreds of meters away from the waste pits and they would turn up no contaminants they oh there's no contaminants at this site you know that was manipulation and you know we did not blackmail a judge they were constantly intimidating judges or trying to And, you know, threatening them with, you know, criminal charges if they didn't rule in their favor. They completely tried to delay and sabotage the trial by filing literally dozens and dozens of duplicative motions in an hour. I mean, there was crazy stuff happening. And Chevron was the party doing it, not us. So these allegations are completely false or highly misleading. And, you know, I'm happy to rest on the 220,000 pages of record evidence in the case, the 64,000 chemical sampling results, and the six appellate court decisions from 28 different appellate judges that affirmed the judgment.
2: To me, one of the most mind boggling <laughs> charges to hear from a global oil company was that it was unfair because you and your team had exerted political influence over the judicial process and over the system. Yeah. It's like a, a multinational oil company. Chevron is one of the top five oil companies in the world. Might be, Sharon might be top three.
1: Uh, Yeah.
2: It it is one of the most powerful institutions on the planet. And it is a fact. And you, you could talk a little bit about more as you've been in this world a lot longer. It is a fact that the legal system is also political and that, that, that is the case here in the United States. That's the case in Ecuador. That's the case all, all over the world. We'd like to pretend that, you know, the judicial system is entirely divorced from politics, but it's not. We know that giant law firms, you know, have PR strategies and have political strategies around cases. So what, you know, what kind of political approach did you take to the case in Ecuador? And do you, do you think that anything, that any of it was kind of Over the line, or was it just, this is just the kind of, this is how you do a class action suit, Uh, because class action suits are in a lot of ways inherently political.
3: Well, you know, the debate over whether the law exists kind of in a separate silo, free from politics or subject to politics is something, you know, I heard about a lot as a law student and since, I mean, but let's get real. I mean, every judicial system reflects the politics of the country within which it exists. And, you know, for example, in the United States, as corporations, I think, consolidated their power tremendously over the last 10, 20 years, you know, with the Koch Brothers Funding Network and all these sort of trends that are happening with the Federalist Society, now naming judges that Federalist Society is this right wing legal group that my trial judge is a member of and a leader of, funded by Chevron and a lot of the big corporations in America. I mean, it's very clear there's been a very concerted effort by the corporate right to control the federal judiciary in this country, as well as state judiciaries. And I think that what happened to me with this private corporate prosecution would not have happened had this 20... 30-year effort not been implemented with some degree of success by these elements in our society. It is preposterous for Chevron to accuse us of somehow politicizing the case. All we wanted to do was do a legal case based on evidence. They would, for example, take out full-page advertisements in the Ecuadorian leading Ecuadorian newspapers during the trial, attacking me or attacking our experts. The websites that Sharon talked about That are used to defame me today that you can get, you know, Amazon Post, I think it's called. I I urge people to go look at it. It's crazy. They did that kind of stuff in Ecuador. They do it here. They do it constantly, not just in this case, but in trying to control what people think about, you know, climate change and about what they do as a company in terms of clean energy. It's all very deceptive. And it's all designed to impact how the law operates and how judges rule based on political pressure. I mean, they're trying to generate pressure to win cases through manipulation or abuse that I don't think they could ever win fairly on the merits of the actual claim. So they do that constantly. I saw it with my own eyes in this case in Ecuador and since. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I observe this industry pretty closely because of the work I do. And you see this all the time. So the idea that like a human rights lawyer, for example, would talk to Sharon Lerner or talk to the press or invite a documentary filmmaker to record the litigation, you know, for them to try to argue that that was somehow inappropriate when they do those exact same things at a much, much higher and more effective level, I think is obviously hypocritical, insincere and inaccurate.
1: And and let me just jump in about the about where Chevron ranks. So they are second to Saudi Aramco in terms of the amount of greenhouse gases emitted in the modern era.
3: Wow. Yeah. Yes. You know, I'll say this. You you know, people are obviously watching the war in in Ukraine. Few people know that Chevron is literally the only American large American company still doing business in Russia during this war. They're partnering with Putin's government on a huge gas pipeline that generates literally hundreds of millions of dollars a day in revenue for Russia, for the government, and for Putin to fund his, you know, his army that is committing all sorts of atrocities in Ukraine. You know, so Chevron is a company that turned its back on the indigenous peoples of Ecuador, whom it poisoned and to whom it owes money. You know, they don't pay, they leave the, these vulnerable communities holding the cleanup bill for harm that Chevron caused. And then, you know, they go over to Russia and they're in business with Putin. I mean, there's no end, it seems, no, no floor to what I would argue is the moral bankruptcy of this particular company. But of course, it's an industry-wide problem. I mean, it's all about the money. And it's very clear that our governmental institutions have been so seriously weakened by corporate money that they're incapable of actually standing up to this kind of abuse. I mean, that's what I experienced again in my criminal, private criminal prosecution.
1: You know, I guess I definitely see how there's a way in which this has really backfired for Chevron. And we've seen we've seen Chris Smalls and and all these um, amazing activists like kind of stream through your apartment while you've been stuck there. People are sort of like going to pay tribute. and, And it's been this amazing thing to watch on your Instagram. Right. You know, all the people who the activists who are recognizing what you've been through and pulling together and i find that really inspiring and encouraging and on the other hand you know the people of ecuador who you were representing again have not received any of the money that they were supposed to get the the environmental mess is is still there you know and you have emerged on the other side of this but you don't have your law license and you can't go defend them and you know I don't want. I, I hesitate to couch this all in terms of winners and losers, but I worry about the upshot of all you've been through. I just think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this, and some of them are are positive, and some of them are pretty scary.
3: I share your concern. I mean, I you know, this is not all good for me. Um, look, it's bad. Yeah. I mean, what what I'm really trying to convey is I got strengthened through the process of their persecution of me to the point where we're in a much higher place right now, where I think they actually face more risk now than they did three, three years ago. But it doesn't mean that they're going to pay the Ecuador judgment by any means. It's unclear how all of this is going to play out. I think the big loss is for our society. I mean, there was a private corporate criminal prosecution that deprived a human rights lawyer of his liberty for almost 3 years on a based on a, a civil discovery order in a in a civil case. It's never happened before. And I think that's what people really need to focus on. I mean, I'm confident enough in my in the, you know, the support I have and my resilience to really feel like I will get through whatever they try to throw at me from this point forward. You know, it doesn't mean I'll have my old life back because I have to deal with all sorts of, you know, issues and, you know, sort of byproduct of what I had to endure the last few years. But, you know, I'm okay. My family's okay. I think the real question is, where are we in the United States of America in terms of corporate control of our judiciary and of our governmental institutions? Because we really should not be living in a society where an oil company can directly prosecute its main adversary and deprive him of his liberty without the U.S. government being involved. That's wrong. And that's why I think President Biden, Attorney General Garland, the Congress, like, where are leaders? I mean, I know people are busy with lots of obviously critical critically important issues other than the Ecuador case and other than Chevron and Steve Donziger I get it but like this is a new kind of animal that our criminal justice system has never seen before in terms of the amount of corporate control and allowing you know someone's liberty be, to be taken away essentially by a corporate adversary so you know I am hopeful Sharon that at least on that issue enough attention can be drawn to this so that it never happens again to anyone else at least that's my hope
1: i would also say you know you're you're right that this is this is a, a government story it's a judiciary story it's a climate story and it and i think you're right that it's also a media story you know when i went to see you in uh january 2020 you had already been on house arrest for a couple of months and no one had written about
3: it. I had been on, I had been on house arrest for five months. I got arrested or put right. on house arrest August six two thousand nineteen. You came in January of the next year. And by the way, like I couldn't believe it had lasted seven months. And and if you had told me then it was going to last thirty two months, I'd be like, there's no way. <laughs> but you it know, was so something. yes, th- 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 this has been a story ignored by the mainstream media, totally. I mean, they, they don't know how to deal and with And
1: even after that, so after that story, quite a number of publications, uh, I think we can call them lefty publications, have written about this. But there, I think you're right that there has been a real silence. And I, I think, I know why. You know, you get calls from the attorneys who, you know, scare the, the bejesus out of editors.
3: I focus on my own social media. I focus on truly independent outlets like The Intercept, The Nation um, and others. And just we work with what we have and we have been successful in getting our narrative out there and getting the facts as we see them out there. But I think it's deeply disappointing that you know, a human rights lawyer was locked up for five months Um, there were no stories at all. And since you really opened the floodgates, once you wrote, by the way, a lot of other independent outlets started to write, um, but we still haven't been able to penetrate, you know, the large media companies.
2: And let me take this opportunity to make a plug, not just for the Intercept, but for the independent kind of media sphere. Like if you as a listener watch any YouTube shows, you listen to independent podcasts, you read independent websites, you know become a member like support support that independent media cuz it's valuable in a in a system where the other piece of it is so tightly connected to corporate america that you can have like just absolutely extraordinary stories that go that go uncovered because of the fear of the the consequences of covering them and so that that's a plug not just for the intercept but for all all independent media and also Stephen, what was it again StephenDonziger.substack.com? com is that your Newsletter.
3: Yeah, so I'm going to be. I just posted, had my first post and launched it last week. I'm going to be writing every week about all sorts of issues related to the criminal justice system. I, I, years ago, I did a, I edited a book called The Real War on Crime. Um, I used to be a criminal defense lawyer. I just spent 45 days in the belly of the beast in federal prison, and you know, several more months dealing with this home confinement craziness, where I get you know calls by this. For profit company at all hours of the day or night, day and night. So, I'm going to be writing about a lot of human rights issues, criminal justice issues, and of course, Chevron and some of the oil industry and climate issues. And, you know, again, it's Stephen I, I hope people subscribe um, and get interested in some of this material. You know, I'm, I'm no real, I'm really no different than The Intercept just as a person in the sense that, like, I feel like it's very hard to you know create platforms where truly independent reporting and commentary can actually take place you know the intercept is is a relatively new institution in our world but it's so important like i get so much of my information from y'all's outlet and i salute all of y'all for what you do and others as well you know so the media landscape has changed. I mean, look—if this had happened 25 years ago, and like the New York Times decided not to cover me, like I don't think anyone mm-hmm. would have known about this. Like, where do you, where would you have gone back then? You know. And now the reality is the story's out. Um, you know, when I when they arrested me back in 2019, I think I had about a thousand Twitter followers. And now I have 180,000. Like there's people very engaged in this story all over the world. By the way, if people want to follow me, it's at S Donziger. Sorry to keep plugging myself, <laughs> but I hope you understand why I do that because I it's do. like the only way I can get support. You know, so so we're just in a completely different environment where you know you don't as much need these big media outlets to get the truth out like you did years ago. So I'm trying to take full advantage of that and like even being on this podcast having The Intercept write about this on a regular basis. You guys wrote another story about um, about uh, Senator Gillibrand's relationship to Chevron and Chevron lawyers. Um, you know, there's so much interesting reporting going on over there. So I'm just appreciative and, you know, I don't know what to say. And by the way. You know, I I recognize some of this case is a little complicated, but to me, it's real simple. I mean, the indigenous peoples were poisoned by Chevron. They won a legal case. Chevron's now trying to destroy the legal case by destroying their lawyer. And if you want to read more about it, you know, on our website, freedonziger.com, there's a bunch of articles, including from The Intercept, um, where people can get a lot more background information than we have time to delve into now in this podcast.
2: Thanks for taking some time out of your first day of freedom and i hope you enjoy the rest of it and thank you sharon for joining me as well
1: thank you for having me and Stephen. i hope you take a nice long walk <laughs> look at the sky i need a
3: breather and thank you sharon for your great work and ryan appreciate your uh, your great journalism as well and i really appreciate the opportunity to share my my thoughts with you guys
2: all right thank you Stephen. <laughs>
1: That was Steven Donziger and Ryan Grimm. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Sharon Lerner, investigative reporter for The Intercept. If you would like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcastsattheintercept.com. Thanks so much.